It's time to clip your last good piece and dig in because the runout starts now. You know that I live with a lawyer, right? I've heard. <laughs> An attorney. <laughs> and unfortunately, I don't think that's rubbed off on me very well. You're not a litigious soul. No, I just, um, I just, uh, I, you know, we got this email. We got the other half of, uh, of the booty story that we put on episode 88. This person, uh, we can say this woman, we're not going to name who this is, but uh, got back to us with her side of the story. And it made me feel as though, um, you know, we hadn't done our due diligence in terms of the law, in mm. terms of, of getting both sides of the story. We just, we just, you know, got that email, got all excited, took their word for it. No, nobody swore in on the Bible or anything. Yeah, we were, we were um, the prosecutors. Yeah, uh, we both, we prosecuted this poor woman without um, hearing her side of the story. Yeah. So, like I said, even though I stand there and listen to um, my partner, literally litigating, you know, since it was the pandemic and she was at home in court in our living room. Uh, it's, and like I said, it hasn't rub, rubbed off on me. Yeah. I, I hear words like adjudicate. Don't know what that means. <laughs> you know, I hear other Latin phrases. None of it's <laughs> apparently sunk in. So Yeah. Well, that's okay because um, we're not lawyers. We're podcasters. <laughs> so True. And so therefore we have taken no ethical vow. That comes with passing the bar. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. It's um instead of do no harm, it's more what just no no facts. Yeah, no facts. Learn <laughs> no facts. Well, you know what's funny is there is this with the when you pass the bar, like at the end when you're like being sworn in, you you do take this vow of like acting ethically and all mm-hmm. this sort of stuff. And it and it just feels like like lawyers like basically flush that from their brains before they even leave the building not johnny cochran he no. <laughs> i heard he was a good one <laughs> and steph's a good one too but oh amber alert amber alert mm, denver keep an eye out for a stolen ford focus 2018 black yeah, so let's uh let's catch our listeners up on on our last conversation about this this booty topic. We got this email from this woman who uh had heard that there was gear up on this route in in the mountains. I don't mm-hmm. even think we mentioned where it was, but she and her boyfriend went and they climbed the route and they retrieved some gear and I thought that was cool and great. And about a week later they got a angry loud knock on their door at 10 30 at night or 11. wait 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 <laughs> according to new information there was no it was not an angry knock but a polite knock yes well we'll get there we'll get okay there. okay <laughs> okay so we're talking their side yeah of the story. yeah well, I'm they just felt gonna... as though it was uh uh intrusive we're doing the recap before okay, the sorry, episode sorry. begins i just want to i just i'm i'm really nervous about keeping <laughs> this thing on the up and up this time <laughs> so i want to be disbarred from podcast judge land <laughs> Um, she, she described a, an angry loud knock at 11 PM or something like that late at night. And, um, this crazy woman was <laughs> raving half naked, Jerry Springer style, just mm-hmm. ready to like fight her and punch her teeth in probably on meth. Probably. And, yeah. Um, 
ready to, yeah, just rip her hair out and yeah, you know, whoop her ass. And so we, we talked about that and we sided with, uh, with the friendly woman who was being berated by this crazy lunatic from, from a Jerry Springer episode. Does, do, do we remember Jerry Springer? Do people remember Jerry Springer? I don't Springer? know if people do. <laughs> it was a television show. <laughs> <laughs> Look it up. <laughs> um, anyway, but the, the more interesting point was that we got to talk about the ethics of bootied gear and mm-hmm. whether there's any kind of like onus on the party that finds gear to, f- to find the owners of said gear and give it back to them. Or if it's just all of, you know, your spoils to, to uh, enjoy for the rest of your life. Do you remember what we said? Essentially that, you know, if it's left, it's booty and Yes, there should be some pains to 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 you know make it known that it was retrieved in certain circumstances, and in this case, it was people who had bailed and left a substantial amount of gear. It wasn't just a piece. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I mean, I, we'd have to recap the whole thing again, but essentially, yeah, if you leave it behind, you probably are, have to kiss it goodbye in the end, and you don't necessarily have the same rights to it that you would if like someone stole your car. Right. For example. Right. <laughs> um, it's not exactly stolen. Um, so if you get it back, that's great. But in the end, if it was left, it was left and and Sayonara. Right. Yeah, I think we kind of or at least I got into my feelings on this that people should be more willing to to or to think of gear as like kind of temporary tools that mm-hmm. you use in the mountains. And um sometimes the the price of admission is is just that, you know handful of cams or a few nuts or whatever and some slings that you have to to leave to get out of there anyway we um have since uh recording that episode we heard from uh this stark raving lunatic the defendant the defendant <laughs> if you will um who, who, yeah, who, I, I suppose she would be the defendant yeah the she's way the defendant were, yeah. yeah yeah the defendant emailed us and um gave us her side of the story and um she seems quite reasonable yeah. actually <laughs> Apparently she's given up the meth. <laughs> At least she <laughs> she's gotten clean. Email. Yeah, yeah. Um, yes, it was an extremely point by point, very polite, uh, somewhat deprecating email that she sent us. But definitely wanted to get her side of the story on. Well, actually, she didn't ask us to do this. Once we got the email, we emailed her back and said, "Hey, can we do it?" And she said, "Yeah, that's fine." So yeah, it was in no way wasn't an attempt to to get us to to uh, rehash. She just no. wanted us to know that she wasn't as nuts as as maybe she'd been uh, portrayed. And because we are um, just you know absolutely uh, scavenging for any kind of content to discuss on on this podcast, we uh, told her that we're going to read her email in full and make it an episode. Okay. Are we reading her email in full? No, we're not going to okay. do that. Right. Um, but we'll, we'll give uh, listeners the gist of it. So a couple points. Um, hey, I have a question. Yeah. Speaking of old references, uh, Cliff Notes, Cliff's Notes, mm-hmm. do people understand what that is still or was? I don't know. Do you I mean, remember it, what Cliff's Notes oh, were? Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, those little yellow books yeah. that... that were 30 pages long and, and just condensed down great works of literature that you had no time to read because exactly. you're busy playing Nintendo. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> and I just, I use that still. I used it just the other day in another conversation and it started to dawn on me like, that shit's gone. Like, that is, but I, I feel like it's sort of, 
an old school meme, mm. like a pre-internet meme that like maybe has lasted. Mm-hmm. So anyway, if any, anybody out there doesn't know what Cliff's Notes are, you can look it up. But um, anyway, so so this is the Cliff's Notes of the email. Yeah, I don't think you even have to read Cliff's Notes now. You just get an AI to do your homework for sure, you. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> while you play uh, Call of Duty. Yeah, while you post uh, TikToks of yourself uh, with your booty climbing gear, <laughs> dancing. <laughs> um, anyway, so a few points. One, she did not arrive at 11 p.m. It was actually 10.30 p.m. Okay. Let me write that down. Um, Noted. And she does note that that was late, but she was leaving the next morning. She had no idea if they were still going to be there. And she felt like this was her moment to uh, to try to get her gear back. And yes. so she was she was perhaps aware of the, the lateness of the hour, but kind of a, a, later on in her email, we'll get to a, a couple lines that I will read. But she seems to regret maybe the way that she composed herself in the moment. But anyway, she felt it was important to let us know that it was 1030 and not 11. So. Okay. Does that change anything for you, Chris? Not yet. Okay. Still guilty? Uh, well, still dark <laughs> out. <laughs> um, she also said, uh, I think that we mentioned that the person who found who bootied the gear left a comment on Mountain Project saying that the, the gear had been, that he had retrieved the gear, the boyfriend of the, of the woman whose email we, we first got. Right. Um, that was not true. She did some sleuthing on Mountain Project and just looked up who was t- who had ticked the route in the last week and right. s- and sort of came to the to the understanding that that this person who had just you know conspicuously ticked this route on Mountain Project almost certainly had her had her gear. So I thought that was interesting. Well, that is interesting because I w- had been under the impression, and I, and I I think. This was my mistake because I don't think they ever claimed that they we had, read into something. Yeah, that we read true. into it. Yeah, all they had done on Mountain Project is ticked the climb. Mm-hmm. Now I know what that is. Um, I've never done that, nor would I ever do that. Uh, I don't. I mean, I guess it's cool because then you know other people climb the route, but I just don't go that deep. Um, my my Mountain Project persona is basically dead anyway. But I had been under the impression that they had posted something to say we have the gear. Mm-hmm. Which, to me, is in fact like the bare minimum. Yeah, to do some sort of public posting of in this case, like again on the last episode, we we got into the nuances of it depends on what you found and where. But in this case, I think where someone's clearly bailed, that you you have an obligation to make a modicum of effort to let the world know that this gear is 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 in your hands and you can, you will give it back if contacted. And so, I thought so they this, had done that. So, so. The, the reason for the confusion is that it, it wasn't a comment that said we we found gear that belongs to someone. It, the comment said we cleaned an absurd amount of fixed gear. Okay. And so that word fixed sounded like made it sound like I mean, when you hear the word fix, it sounds like old nuts or something or mm-hmm. like casine pitons or something, you right, know, right. that have been... Um, or a double stem Camelot. Yeah, not just like brand new cams that were, you know, had clearly just been left right uh, the week before. So 
so that comment was a little misleading, but that that was part of her sleuthing was she found she saw that comment that the, that fixed gear in quotes had been had been cleaned from this route. Right. And I but that's like when I read this thing, that's when my I was like, "Oh man, that that was an impression I had that was very wrong." Mm-hmm. And it made me look at the old email in a whole different light. Right. Because it seems a little bit, you know, it's some obfuscation to to call it fixed gear. That's a good word, Chris. Because, are, we, are we adjudicating right now? <laughs> I don't know. Did I pronounce it right? <laughs> but you know, it's like, yeah, it was like, ah, uh, like, uh, yeah, that that was a little shady. Because mm-hmm. I mean, obviously, it wasn't. Yes, but we'll get into that later too. Because the, the 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 kind of gear is also very important, I think, in this conversation. So we also talked about how the the first woman whose email we got made it sound like they that this other, this uh, second woman had tried to contact them on Instagram and that they just hadn't seen her messages because it was in like the, you know, like the DM folder or file. Or no, I think they said they were gone and out of contact. Well, they were gone, but I I imagine it was also in like that weird, you know, like... If you're not friends with the person. Yeah, exactly. It's just like... Message requests. Exactly. Yeah, which I don't fuck with those. Thank you. Yeah, I agree. <laughs> I mean, um, a tiny bit, but I generally don't fuck with those. So. I do fuck with those, but it's because I have this neuroses about like lingering unread messages. Like, oh, really? You know, if like if there's like uh, one of those like little notifications that shows that you have like unread emails or like yeah. n- messages that haven't been read, it Good drives you, me man. fucking nuts. I wish I had that because yeah, <laughs> if I did, I'd bash my head through some drywall by now because I got a lot of those. Yeah. No, that's one of the things I had to do. It's like, I'm so far behind on all this messaging. I can't fuck with the... Like, I glance in there, but I, it's like I don't... I'm not thorough at mm. all. Yeah, I had I to. to. I just had to, clean. like, excise that from my life. Like, the you know, the 12th or 13th way in which people give me messages. I was like, that one's gone. Because you have a ready excuse. Like, yeah, I was in there. I don't know what the fuck you're talking about. This might be the most significant personality difference between us. It is. Would... It's, but it says a lot about the other ones, the other differences. <laughs> but we get along nevertheless. <laughs> um, anyway, so she mentioned that um, that they actually were posting on Instagram. And uh, there was also a YouTube channel that they had where they were posting videos of the van and their travels and mm-hmm. stuff. And so it was through this kind of posting on social media that allowed this woman to sleuth her way back and find their van in in uh in a climbing parking lot at 10 30 at night right and we had joked about her being stalking them and she also jokes about her stalking them yeah. in in her email so she was willing ready ready to admit that maybe she'd like gone a little deep mm-hmm. but there's a reason for that which we're still getting to so the original email also made it sound like they had to like they were like, well, what are you even talking about? Like, what cams do we have? And like, they they weren't sure. And it was kind of like this confusion. And she also kind of confirms that detail where she says like, she had to name the cams to to make them remember. And um, she's, I'll, I'll just read what she said. She said, I did not demand it back, but named off the cams, which made him remember. I asked if I could have them back. We actually had a very pleasant conversation about their recent trip to the mountains. I was heading to the mountains early the next week another reason to bother them at an unreasonably late time and they were cool about it. So she's giving them a little bit of props that there was like a, a bit of co- a cordial moment. Right. Um, 
even though I think that after that cordial moment happened, the, the, the people in the van were like, what the fuck was that? And, right. And kind of this, that sparked this whole thing. So the other detail is that she says, interesting in your podcast, you didn't mention the amount of gear. So there were three totem cams, an offset cam, along with plenty of nuts and slings. I had purposefully left uh, gear en route with the intention to go back once the rock was dry. I was going to go in the day after I saw this person's uh, tick on Mountain Project. That's why I had checked. Right. So there's an important piece of information in here, and that is the totem cam. Mm -hmm. Like the fact that there's three totem cams left and three totem cams found like changes the entire scenario. Do you remember the story I told on the on the podcast mm -hmm. um about the guy who found our giant rack? Oh yeah. And it basically like turned him into Gollum. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's the problem is it was fucking totem camps. Right. Like the totem cam I mean what's the analogy? It's like the I don't know, it's like the delica of climbing camps. It's like the you know I don't. I I really don't think you can even get them on ProDeal. Like it's such a small company. There's nobody. Like you pay fucking retail for these things. You they're hard to get. They're from uh, the Basque country in Spain. There's only a handful made. So like you know, it's like the 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 briefcase in in Pulp Fiction. You know, and they open yeah. it up and the, there's totem cams in that in the briefcase <laughs> if if you're a climber. Okay, so it's like so. I think that I really honestly when I read that I was like. oh, I'm like, I understand now. I understand the desire of the two people to keep them. Yeah. You know, to do the minimum of advertising that they have them. And I realize why this woman, you know, got up her gumption and sauntered across that parking lot in the middle <laughs> of the night and banged on that fucking door because yeah. they were totem camps. Dude. Right. And so it's like, that was, I was like, holy shit, totem camps, three of them, like <laughs> fucking three totem camps. <laughs> You know, uh, yeah, that's like four hundred bucks right there. Yeah, and that's what she says is like yeah. four hundred dollars worth of gear. So, and actually, I don't care. It's, I mean, the four hundred bucks is related to the fact that they're totem cams because they're not cheap. But even if it was four hundred dollars worth of other things, it what it's not the same as as leaving and then finding totem cams that are like not all beat up. Like mm -hmm. it definitely like is a moment of like my precious. Like you're you're like fuck, we just bootied totem camps. Like, yeah. I bet you, I mean, I bet you nobody out here listening has ever bootied a, a, a clean, usable totem cam in their life. Yeah, that is true. That's a very good point. You know, because there, I mean, you go to great lengths to get your totem camps yeah. back. So now I'm understanding, like, why this woman was so, you know, on the hunt. Mm -hmm. Again, the, 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 the price of the gear too, but... It all makes sense. Mm -hmm. It all makes sense. Everybody was acting a little bit like out of sorts because it was three totem camps. If it was, um, you know, like uh, some just like junky old Metolius like camps. Like a bent TCU. <laughs> yeah. and like, basically like my rack, like anything that's on my rack. Yeah. <laughs> People would be yeah. like, I don't know. You want this shit? I don't want this shit. It's kind of they'd, have, they'd have stuck it to a board somewhere like free camps. <laughs> Maybe that's why we were so cavalier about um, about leaving gear is because we have like shitty old gear. That's true. Yeah. <laughs> um, Although I, I've seen your your ultralights, those things are in good condition. <laughs> I I don't have. Do I have ultra? I don't have ultralights. I thought you did. No, I don't. Oh, I might have one. Oh, okay. One or two. Yeah. 
but yeah, if I had a rack of ultralights, I would definitely go bang on anyone's door to. Yeah, to the ultralight would be another one that you'd yeah. be. You'd be. I think totem still like trumps that because they're harder to get. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and they have a cult following too. Fully. Like, yeah. If you were, if you're, if you've got totem cams on your rack, then people just automatically think you're cool. You're a badass. Yeah. <laughs> I don't have any. I and I. You know, I'm just happy. You know, I'm old dog, new tricks kind of guy. I've used them because uh, Joseba, my friend, uh, my Basque friend from Spain, um, he's buddies with the guy and was like mm-hmm. sort of sponsored in the sense of like, I think he gave him a rack of them to, to bring to the U.S. Mm-hmm. But yeah, so I've seen them, played with them. They're great, but you know, I don't know where to get them. I don't even fucking know where to get them. Like, where do you get them? I think it's just on the internet. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> or on this route in, in the Wind Rivers or wherever the hell it was. <laughs> um, all right. So I'll I'll give this uh, this kind uh, lady the last word here. So I'm not sure why I feel the need to dispute this at all. I've actually felt pretty good about my decisions the whole time. If you had $400 worth of gear sitting down the street, would you not go ask for it back? If you made $17 an hour, you might. I figured the worst that could happen was they said no, but they didn't. And in the end, I really don't think I would have gotten it back if I didn't knock on their van that night. Again, maybe I'm wrong. In the big picture, there's something to be said. We both could have handled ourselves better. I believe it was their responsibility to reach out and mine to be patient. Theirs to be okay with giving the gear back and mine to be okay with not. I've climbed many years in the mountains and I've made mistakes that day. Not checking conditions, not carrying enough nuts, etc. So that's all really nice, but then she kind of can't help herself from uh, ending with a little snarky paragraph here. What's funny is if it wasn't for social media, I wouldn't have known they had my gear. I wouldn't have known that they were still in this town. I wouldn't have known what their van looked like. Creepy, I know, but if you spray enough of your life for everyone in the world to see, you can't get that mad when one of them comes knocking on your door. (laughs) True. No, I, think that, I like this. I like this lady. Yeah, I yeah. think the moral of the story, though, is if you're going to booty gear, just don't post on social media. <laughs> Alex Honnold is the free solo goat. He lives in Las Vegas with his wife Sani and daughter June. always great to connect with you and um we appreciate the time it looks like you're back in the in the good old days there in your van all by yourself you're all bundled up because it's certainly cold in yosemite which is uh where you are is that correct yep yep i'm a solo life in the van in yosemite it does feel like a bit of a throwback so june and sonny are back in vegas and uh you're yep, on your yeah, own there in yosemite I FaceTimed with him this morning. Little June actually recognized me and was all excited. It's, it's, uh, I was like, oh, so cute. It's like, yeah, they get their hooks in you, to get better. <laughs> yeah, I know. It's, it's, uh, it's starting for sure. I was like, oh, so nice. But, um, slowly building. But no, it's here to, uh, uh, June is nine months. Oh, today is her nine month birthday. Oh, cool. Yeah. Yeah. In the next couple months, is she started to like walk or toddle around or, yeah, she toddles. She's she's perilously close to walking. She'll stand yeah. and like stand unassisted, but teetering and hasn't actually walked. I uh, made a point of 
bringing my best dad ever mug for a conversation <laughs> with some fellow fathers here. Uh, I don't know if you have one of those yet, Alex, but I'm sure I, it's coming I, uh, at some point. Yeah, I haven't earned mine yet. It'll be several years. I'm still waiting on my uh, best husband ever mug also. That's, that's, that's a long ways away. I don't have either. Uh, so I don't know what I'm doing wrong over here either. Are, are you even married, Chris? Uh, no. So I can't be best partner, I guess, or best, best domestic partner ever. <laughs> Do they even yeah, make yeah. one of those? I don't even know what we are. We're not even that. And we're not common law either because... Steph is a lawyer, knows all about what that actually is. Most people don't understand it, but yeah, I don't know. Guy who lives in the house, takes care of the kid. <laughs> and Manny. looks handsome doing it. That's Thank the important you. part. Yeah. I put some some uh, uh, treads on the stairs this morning, so I'm doing my, my, um, my home improvement. So as they say, thanks for the compliment, but you know, there's the old, <laughs> if, you, if you're not handsome, you better be handy. Mm. Mm. I've never heard that, but that is a good, uh, that is a good saying. I need, I need to come up with one or the other, but work on something. So anyway, back to, uh, back to Yosemite. What do you, uh, what's, what's on your, um, agenda there? What have you been getting after? I tried something a little bit with Nick Berry. Basically, I'm just out to climb with Nick Berry for a little bit, but we basically just got waylaid on the thing we were trying. And so, uh, I think we're going to go try something else tomorrow. Did it get wet or something? Yeah, there's so much snow. I mean, we went up the East Ledges yesterday on El Cap, and it's uh, it's very wintry. It was sort of like a survival mountaineering experience, except with no boots or crampons because you don't normally bring that kind of stuff to Yosemite. Basically, you know, an opportunity to climb with Nick for a little bit in the valley seemed seemed fun. It's awesome. uh, I, I rarely get on missions like this with with good partners anymore, especially because Tommy's been out for the last year, and I'm sort of like, oh, I need I need somebody to climb with for a bit. But, um, but yeah, so we're hoping, and I have to be home for Thanksgiving for family stuff, and so we have a week left, and we're going to try to do something else just for a quick win. But. Nick uh, was out in Rifle this fall, so we spent some time with him out here, oh, yeah. and um, I imagine he's got some some sport. He's always fit, but I'm sure he's got some sport climbing fitness to uh, bring to your project. So far, we haven't really needed it because we've been climbing 70-degree slabs with no holds. <laughs> so it's, <laughs> it's the type of climbing that really doesn't matter how fit you are. It's just horrible no matter what. <laughs> um you know so yeah we heard tale of uh of you on the salafay wall and chris and i have been on uh really chris has been on a mission to just kind of dissect and and go into the history of pitch 19 and and kind of piece together what a true free ascent of the salafay might look like you know considering this forgotten pitch of pitch 19 and so forth um so we kind of heard that uh through the grapevine that you were working on that um, I don't know if you want to share any details or thoughts, but it would be fun to to catch yeah. up on that too. Yeah, so I freed the South A without pitch 19, I don't know, like 10 or 15 years ago, like quite a long time ago. And then this season in the spring, I thought it would be sort of a fun sort of light lift LCAP free climbing objective to try to do the original South A with pitch 19, but also with the other variations like the Teflon corner, which was the original way, which I'd actually never freed before because... uh it, well, because it's slightly hard, but also when I was working on the whole section of the wall for the potential of free soloing the free rider, it was like the Teflon corner was totally out of the question. And so I just didn't ever really work it. Um, but then also there's this small variation down low to get to the hollow flake that was the original Stefan Glauvitz uh, thing that he found in like, you know, 1983 or something. And so basically I wanted to do all these sort of historic variations to the South eh? And I thought that it would just be kind of a quick, easy objective that I could do with the family in the van and, you know, it'd be fine. Uh, as it turns out, I failed on the last move of the head wall and then wasn't able to come back. And then this fall, 
wanted to do it again, but then basically spent two days on the wall. And it's just the conditions in the fall are just not ideal. It's like too crowded, but but mostly it's too hot. Well, too hot in the sun and too cold in the shade and really small days. And so it's just hard to hard to nail it in the fall. So I was like, oh, there's no point in fighting an uphill battle. I'll just wait until next spring or whenever, really. I mean, it's always there. Actually, and part of the reason I wanted to try it last spring was that it's the it was the five year anniversary of soloing the free rider, and so it's kind of a fun way to just revisit that part of the wall because it occurred to me that I should just climb the free rider again. You know, it's like a fun five year anniversary thing, just because you know I spent so much time on that five years ago. But then I was like, who wants to climb the free rider again? I was like, that sounds terrible. <laughs> I'd rather do something new, and so I figured that the original Salate seemed like a fun project. Yeah, and were you um were you doing all this ledge to ledge business up there, or at least trying to? Are you is that <laughs> yeah, part of I your was, factor? Yeah, I was certainly aspiring to. You know, it depends how you call out stuff, but basically I simul climb slash speed climbed the whole, you know, up to the pitch nineteen basically. So I guess that's kind of ledge to ledge because you're just not really you're only <laughs> stopping at like heart ledge and then <laughs> at uh at the at the top of the year basically. So, you know, that's ledge to ledge enough. And then I linked the three Sulatois pitches up to the head wall. And then I would have linked the head wall had I not fallen off the end. So, you know, I, I was trying to. But honestly, cool. I don't I don't care that much. You know, I, I do the ledge to ledge stuff more because I want to stand on a ledge to rest. Like, you know, I want right. a comfortable belay, not because I'm trying to do some stylistic thing. All right. Well, I care. So um, yeah, okay. I care a great deal. <laughs> I didn't think I could love you anymore, Alex Honnold. But now that you're talking about... Stefan Glovax's original variation and pitch 19 and the Teflon corner and all these things. It's like, I'm just getting even more warm fuzzies because you know what? In our investigation, Andrew, I totally forgot. And I think a lot of people forget about um, Stefan's epic attempt at freeing it. Dude, and and Stefan's variation to the hollow flake is actually kind of better. I think the Stefan Glovax thing to the hollow flake is, is kind of my, maybe my preferred way now. And and actually, I remembered it because in 2007 or something, I supported Jake Whitaker when he did the free rider in a day, which is one of the early ascents. And he did it that way because he's really tall and he just thought it was easier. And so I remember that that was a thing, but I always thought it was too reachy or too hard or, you know, I don't know. I just, it says 12C slab on the Tobo. So I was like, well, that sounds kind of daunting. Turns out for right. me, at least it's like 5'11", way straighter, way easier. It's just like nicer. And I was like, oh, go Stefan. You're just questing across this blank wall, so it's definitely pretty intimidating. But once you know you can do it, it's uh, it's actually quite nice. Yeah, and it's funny because I mean I don't want to go too far into this because we've we've actually already done two episodes on pitch nineteen <laughs> in the South Day. So there's going to be a third one now. But um, that's that's why Andrew but, doesn't care at all. He's just glazed over, being like, <laughs> "Yeah, it's all like, which wall are we talking about?" <laughs> <laughs> but see, the thing just to explain to the listeners at that point, there the standard sort of free variation is to down climb this entire pitch of 511 and then kind of move over and then climb the entire pitch of of the hollow flake and now you go in lower is that right and then and then climb yeah the entire yeah the beauty of the there. the Stefan Glovitz thing is from the level of the anchor you just go straight across you go straight left and that actually puts you mm-hmm. in exactly at the bottom of the hollow flake so right. it's just you go straight left and then straight up and that's it so there's none yeah. of the up and none of the down and yeah, because normally the when you climb the hollow flake, it's like 400 feet of climbing or something because you down climb like 40 meters and then take one step over and then climb another 50 or 60 meters back up. It's like crazy. It's so much work. And this way, at least yeah. it's a little bit less work. One of the big kind of discussion points that we had around this pitch 19 was just the culture of climbing and how 
you know, basically the Huber brothers were like, oh, this is the new way to go. And everyone was like, okay, and didn't question it. And it was just kind of set in stone and, and people kind of forgot about it, kind of fell into obscurity. But do you, in your conversations with other climbers that you've been having um, on the wall or, or people, I don't know, just kind of having those kinds of discussions about what what the what the best variation is to do the salathe is it are there any kind of like I no honestly, is that something that I, people are, are talking about i don't think people talk about it that much i mean i've seen a lot of parties up on the free rider not so many people trying to free the salathe but in general i think most people just do what they think is the route you know it's like nobody's up there evaluating mm-hmm. the different options and considering going around and considering going left and right it's like they just know that this is the way they're supposed to go and they just think that's that's the route that's not to criticize anybody up there because, you know, I mean, half, the, actually most of the people I met this season were, were foreign, you know, and they're probably using some like random topo they pulled off like planet mountain in Italian or whatever. And it's like, they're just following the line that's on their topo. And certainly the first times that I climbed El Cap, I wasn't looking all over for free variations and other ways to go. You know, I was like desperately trying to stay on route. You know, I was like, where's the topo? Like it must stay on the official line because if I deviate, I'll die. You know, it all seems kind of scary the first time. Like it takes a certain familiarity and comfort with the wall to feel like you want to try that other corner that's 20 meters to the right or whatever. You know, it's like you got to feel pretty at home up there to start questing around. Yeah, I don't want to put you in a position of like of any sort of arbiter of style up there. That's, um, that's what I've done to myself is I, I put myself <laughs> on a, I put myself on the throne, you know, which is I typical think... for someone who's never done it, you know, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's, that's <laughs> I think though, I mean, because I've sold the route, I'm, I am thinking about going back and chopping all the bolts on the whole wall to sort of return <laughs> it to the original South A glory. Yeah. Yeah, this is it. You've heard, you've heard it here first. <laughs> <laughs> that's a, that's my project for next season is, is a uh, wrap chopping the entire South A. <laughs> for snake tank. Oh, dude. If anybody yep. could do it and still have everyone love you, it would be you. <laughs> it would not be me. Everyone would hate me. <laughs> I would, I would get beat up for sure. <laughs> no i'm I'm really Unreal. not into all that stuff i don't yeah, I'll never I know. Chop anything. let's switch gears and talk about some other stuff that you've done this year because you've you've had some you've had an interesting year uh as a climber you've been on some expeditions that i wrote about and we talked about um i think actually last oh, yeah. time we talked was on a sat phone yeah uh, yeah and you were sitting on a glacier that. in greenland yeah yeah <laughs> um yeah that's funny but uh, why don't we just talk about your traverse in Red Rocks, which um, I know has been a few years in the making. Um, so just tell us what, what the deal is with that. Yeah, the Hurt. So the Honnold's ultimate Red Rock traverse. It's, uh, it's something <laughs> we had been, we, I had been calling it the, the Hurl. You know the Whirl, the Wasatch Ultimate Ridge Link Up? Do you guys know the Whirl? Uh, but- no. You guys have never done the, so that's the thing is that the whirl is like a really famous sort of ultra running mountain scrambling adventure tra- it traverses the entire little cottonwood canyon anyway so the whirl mm-hmm. is is pretty well known in in like the mountain running community sort of so i'd envisioned the the red rock traverse as as the hurl but then the problem is that nobody knows the whirl so everybody just heard that as like oh you puke when you do it and i'm like no it's not about <laughs> puking it's it's a play on on this other cool traverse <laughs> But, uh, but so then I just, and anyway, it wound up being more of a traverse than a link up. And so I was like, oh, it's more of the hurt than the hurl. But anyway, so now, now it's a traverse of all the peaks in Red Rock via as many of the classic climbing routes as I could fit in, in an uncontrived way. So it's basically like a roller coaster ride through the canyons of Red Rock up and down classic climbing routes, also tagging summits. 
what are some of those routes that people would recognize that are included in <laughs> in the fifth class? Like freaking all of them. I mean, like it's it's seriously it's some Canadian spring break tick list. You know, it's like a fantasy tick list. Okay, I'll go from uh, <laughs> I'll go from uh, north to south. I do uh, tunnel vision, classic five seven, really nice. I do the Northeast Ridge of Bridge, which is less classic, but pretty cool 5.6 thing. Then I do Dark Shadows, which is probably the best 5.8 in the park. Then I go down Cat in the Hat, which is a sort of classic 5.6. Then I go over and do Community Pillar, which is not really done that often, but it really should be. I think it's one of the coolest routes in Red Rock. It's this crazy chimney thing. It's really fun. It's like, I don't know, 8 pitch, 5.9 or something. Then I down climb Olive Oil, and then I go up the aquarium which is another route that people don't climb that much but should because it's really nice black varnish it's really nice rock it's like a thousand foot five nine during my traverse it took me 16 minutes to do this route that the topo calls a thousand foot five nine <laughs> it's like i mean it's a uh, it's kind of yeah it's crazy but um and then uh and then i did armatron which is a uh, really nice five nine beautiful varnish that's the route that i almost killed magnus on then down climb uh, Armatron, or uh, sorry, go up Armatron, down climb Mr. Z, which is this really nice 5.7 that people normally use to get up to Armatron. Then I cross the canyon, I go up Crimson Chrysalis, you know, classic route. A couple more pitches to get to the rim where you can then kind of walk down. And then I walk down a bit over to the rainbow wall where I climb the Bird Hunter Buttress, which is not really a classic, but it kind of could be if more people climbed it. It's a 5.9 plus that climbs the rainbow wall. It's this crazy position, really beautiful but a little friable because people just don't climb it that much. Uh, then I traverse over and down climb solar slab. And then though to get to solar slab, you do like a thousand feet of down climbing. I mean, all of these when I'm like, and then you walk over there, it's not like you walk over there. Like then you go to the top of this mountain, you traverse all this crazy terrain. Like it's super complicated. And so from the bottom of solar slab, I cross the Canyon. I go over to Mount Wilson. I climbed Inti Watana, which is like a 2000 foot 10 C. But, uh, cause I go to the summit via the resolution or at, the, that route, Mountain Project calls it 11A. It's one of those rare times where I'm like, I think it is 11A. Like, it's really hard. I don't know. Have you guys ever climbed that thing? I find it no. quite challenging. But I actually went up there with a partner and a rope to work it a day because I'd onsite soloed it and then I'd soloed it again. And both times I was like, this is pretty hard. So then I went up with somebody with a rope. It's like ticked a bunch of holds and like tried to work it out better just so because that happened to be hour 20 in the middle of the night, in the middle of the like peak fatigue of the link up. And I was kind of like, man, it's a bummer to do the hardest and biggest route when you're the most tired, basically. But anyway, after that, I planned to climb this route out of First Creek and then decided not to because I was basically too tired. And it was the least classic of all the routes. It's called the the Celtic Cracks. It, but it kind of sucks. Like, literally nobody's ever done it. Probably because it has no bolted anchors, so nobody wants to go up there. <laughs> but uh, it's like a trad adventure route. Uh, skipped that one because I was too tired and I didn't want to die. And it just kind of sucks. It's not that fun to climb anyway. Uh, and then I walked over to Black Velvet and did epinephrine. And then I was planning to do a couple other things past epinephrine, but then decided to just hike out and be done because I was uh, I was kind of over it. <laughs> so, I mean, it's so, yeah, I mean, right there, like think all each one of those routes is normally like a day mission for for people going in with a rope and rack. Yeah, it sounds like you. Um, I, I saw in the report it was 32 hours. And you're calling 35 miles and like 20,000 or 23,000 vertical feet of climbing. <laughs> yeah, well, <laughs> like 23,000 kind of feet of... Amount. Well, I think it was maybe like 14,000 feet of rock climbing and then 23,000 feet of vert. Or maybe it's like 12,000 feet of rock climbing. It's, uh, it's like 130 pitches, mm -hmm. I think, is what I counted. 
And then the 32 hours, it was basically 24 hours of really fast climbing and traveling. And then I kind of ground to a halt a little bit. At the base of epinephrine, I sat and picnicked for sort of two hours trying to decide, or maybe like an hour and a half or something, but trying to decide whether or not I wanted to keep going or just call it a day. And I, I soloed epinephrine at hour 30 in my tennies because I basically couldn't put climbing shoes on anymore. My feet just hurt too much from all the all the terrain. And I did almost all the climbing in, in my pro shoes. And so it just, I don't know, it took a toll. It, just, it wasn't really that fun by the end, which is why I skipped the last two peaks and just hiked out via the, the limestone ridge. How do you make those calculations uh, about whether to like go or, or not go, you know, when you're in that fatigue state, you know, you know, you can do, a, I'm sure you could, you know, climb a five, nine blind folded or whatever in your approach shoes on a, when you're fresh, but you know, it's clearly like a situation where there, the stakes are pretty, they're huge. I mean, when you're free soloing, there's big stakes at any time. So is it just like an intuition that you have or what, what are you, yeah, what's your thought one process? Of, one of the routes that I skipped in the later in the night, because it wasn't that classic, wasn't that good, was largely because I felt that I didn't really have the margins to sort of feel safe. Like when I'm soloing in Red Rock, a lot of the time, if a foothold broke, you just have enough body tension and tightness to the wall that it wouldn't totally matter. You'd still just be pushing your foot against the wall, but the foot would just break off. Or like if a thumb catch snapped off, like you'd still hold on and be fine. But when I sold in Mount Wilson during the middle of the night, I was starting to feel like if anything broke or anything crumbled, I would just fall off the wall like a limp noodle, you know, because I was like, I have no body tension. I have no, like, I have no tightness. My whole body feels like loose and relaxed and just tired, you know, and it's like, oh, I just don't have that margin, you know, because, I mean, you know, I've had plenty of times where like little things have broken and you're just you, like, it doesn't, you don't even notice really because like you're so tight to the wall. And I was like, I'm not tight to the wall right now. <laughs> I was like, I just don't need to climb a very unpopular route that nobody climbs with friable rock in a what one when it's dark and it's hard to evaluate the holds as well and then two you know when you just don't have the physical margin there it's like you know there's no i had nothing extra in the tank i mean because you know for me normally if i'm soloing five six five seven or like five nine even it's like there's just so much extra in the tank you know you're like oh the holds feel really big and like the footholds look gigantic and everything about it like feels easy but as you start to get more tired, you're like, oh, I wish the hold was a little bigger. You know, <laughs> you're like, it's like, well, it's interesting that you, you know, uh, Andrew just talked about stakes. And of course, the stakes when you're free soloing are the ultimate. Um, but then I thought the opposite about the project in the sense that, you know, this is not some competition. This is not some world changing event that, that, uh, you know, like free soloing a cap or something you've thought about your entire life. So, it's interesting weighing the stakes of like, well, what does it mean if I change it mid go or if I stop here? Like there are no stakes in that sense. You know, this know, was a personal it, project and yeah. So it's interesting that, was, that, that the was two, the real... like the ultimate stakes and the low stakes of like, who cares if I walk out of Black Velvet Canyon right now? No one cares. <laughs> yeah. Well, that was the challenge of, of continuing with the hurt because like if there had been an official finish line, like you have to do exactly what you set out to do. I'm sure I could have. But I just didn't really want to push myself quite that hard because, right. yeah, like you said, like no one is ever going to do this again. <laughs> nobody cares. Nobody even like not not to sound like whiny, but like nobody really understands how hard it is anyway, because, you know, the stats actually aren't nearly as impressive as the terrain is. You know what I mean? Like the amount of vert, sure. like, sound, you know, I mean, 23,000 feet of vert is a really big number, but that doesn't really do justice to how hard the vert in Red Rock is. Like it's all... Like all the descent is like third and fourth class scrambling down 
super technical loose rocks you know it's all like kind of gnarly and like jumping down canyons like jumping rock to rock you know it's not like you're on a trail for like almost none of it i mean i was on a trail for maybe a mile and a half of the 30 something miles so it's just all bushwhacking like i wore freaking gaiters for most of it like running gaiters because it was all kind of you know off off trail terrain and so i was like constantly you know getting a bunch of stuff in my shoes and hitting cactuses and it's all like pretty full-on Anyway. Yeah, and it's so tiring. I mean, moving on that <laughs> yeah. terrain where your feet are slipping almost on every, you know, down loose stuff. It's like it's just ex- exhausting in a way that, you know, it's hard to fathom in terms of like comparing it to running on a trail or even even scrambling on granite slabs and stuff. That's ultimately why I named it the hurt, because every time I did one of the little segments to practice pieces and, and root find and to figure things out, I would always come home feeling completely busted. And I was like, man, you know. You know, because I I forget how many mountains it is. It's like, well, I think it was something like 20 something named summits, but it's like 10 different canyons. And so I'd go in and do one specific section and I'd come home feeling completely destroyed and be like, there's no way that you could do all of them together. It's like you just feel so worked every time, like even doing the smallest little segments are like, it's just it's just a lot. Yeah, it's funny. I mean, like nowadays or like in the last six months, like I feel like everyone has seen the the Magnus video that he made of, of going soloing with me in Red Rock. And that was on the route Armatron, which is one of the smallest and sort of easiest and nicest routes of my entire traverse. And that basically took us the whole day. I mean, for us to go do that route together, it took, you know, six, seven hours for us to hike in and chat and solo it and then hike down. And, you know, that was like a day mission where we were both kind of tired afterward. And you're like, that is the tiniest, tiniest piece of the whole traverse. This is kind of a tangent from the discussion of your climbing. Um, but what do you think of Magnus's kind of YouTube media empire that he's he's built up for himself? It's it's just kind of an interesting example. I'm, of a dude I'm totally into it. Yeah, it's super cool. And it's also just um, it just speaks to like the, the state of climbing media right now, I think, which is in this super you know, a lot of changes and people are experimenting and doing new things. And I don't know if you've, you've had any, if he's inspired you in ways to rethink how you put your content or, you know, messages or whatever out there. No, definitely hasn't inspired me. I mean, I think it's awesome for him. I think it's great that he found himself a path. I mean, we talked about this quite a bit on the day that we were climbing together because, you know, I was super curious what he's doing, basically. (laughs) Like, like what an interesting path. Like, why go from being a professional climber to being a YouTuber? But yeah. and it might have been He's, the last chance you had to ask him too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. I was like, I need my answers before I get you to the root because I know it's all going to end. <laughs> yeah. No, no. Yeah, uh, I, I was, I was totally confident that he would be fine. It was, it was great. Cool. We had a, we had a good time. You know, I mean, that's the thing anyway, is people sorry. watch a video where he's where he's really tense for twenty minutes, but you know, we were together like the whole day, chit chatting and having a nice time. It was, it was really nice actually. But yeah, it was just interesting. He's, you know, he was basically like, oh, this way I get to have the sort of professional climbing lifestyle without having to have all the training and dieting and other stuff that goes with being a professional climber. You know, basically, he still gets to climb full time and do his thing, but with way lower stress. And I was like, that's kind of a good kind of a good scene. You know, it's like he's he's got his his gyms and he's got a nice place and a girlfriend. You know, it's like basically he's living a nice, comfortable lifestyle doing the thing that he loves to do. I don't know. And honestly, I like his videos. I'm always like, oh, wow, he's training with the special forces or he's like doing some crazy thing in the gym. I think the reason that he can get away with being a YouTuber is the fact that he is still one of the best climbers in the world. Like ultimately, mm-hmm. when it comes down to it, you're like, he's so good. Like if it was all just posing or or just, you know, if it felt fake in any way, you'd 
you know, I think it would it would rub me the wrong way. But the fact that he doesn't call himself a professional climber and he just calls himself a YouTuber and he's still like 10 times stronger than I am and like so much better than me at climbing. I was sort of like, you know what? Respect. Like, go, Magnus. Like, that's cool. What's uh, what's the state of your professional career at the moment? Like, are you... How, I guess, how how do you see yourself? I, I know you're sponsored by companies or whatever, but I imagine you're not, you know, uh, paying the rent or paying the mortgage with, um, you know, uh, whatever shoe company sponsors you. Is it Sportiva? Yeah, come um, on, Sportiva. TC Pros. Yeah, whatever. Yeah, come on. Yeah, come on, dude. Like, have, have you not attention. seen Free Solo? I, I, I'm like the worst person to ask about this stuff because I don't, I don't pay attention to this stuff. But yeah, it's just, um, I, I mean, I don't know. I think a lot of people would be interested in knowing like what... Yeah, like w- what does that look like for you? How do you, you you've reached such a level of success in, as a professional climber? You know, it's kind of like you could do whatever you want. So, how do you think about those things? I mean, I'm still basically just trying to do all the same things that I ever was, just trying to climb full time. And so it's it's basically the same as it was ten, fifteen years ago. I was actually just talking to somebody about this, and I, and when I thought about it, I think that my income now probably breaks down sort of a third sponsorship, like as, as it always does, you know, climbing company like the North Face, Black Diamond, Sportiva, things like that. And then maybe a third corporate speaking and sort of public, like going out and giving talks and things like that. Just because that's such a crazy, corporate speaking is a very lucrative market. It's like, it's just kind of an easy way to make a living. And then probably a third random other stuff. So like film projects, TV things, um, like book royalties, like just w- whatever, you know, like all mm-hmm. the or like one off commercials. Like I shot this Chinese cell phone commercial once a couple of years ago. Like, you know, every couple of years you just get some like random or I shot that Katie Brown Citibank commercial when, you know, way back when it's like every yeah. once in a while you just get those random opportunities. So it's probably like a third random stuff, a third corporate stuff and then a third uh, sponsorship. I bet, you know, it's it's hard to say year by year, but how do you vet the projects that come your way in terms of like who you're going to talk to, um, who you're going to film a, a commercial for, you know, is it just like, I don't give a fuck like Monsanto. Sure. I'll, no, I'll do a commercial no. for you guys. Like no problem or whatever. <laughs> What's no. the money? What's the money? <laughs> it's basically the, but yeah. How do you sort of vet it? Basically like personal values. I mean, like I wouldn't do cigarettes. I wouldn't do firearms. I, I've uh, said no to soda commercials and things like that where I'm like, um, you know, I've never worked with Red Bull for that matter, uh, or not like the product anyway, though I, I'd maybe be open to that. I don't know. But, you know, like they're always gray areas, but, you know, I, I won't do things with oil companies, uh, like plastic companies. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, basically, I try my best to not work with anybody that I mean, my running joke with my agent is uh, when it's like some random like business group that's like, you know, come speak to our business thing. I'm always like, make sure they're not white, white nationalists or like, you know, any kind of like full on, <laughs> like radical, like fringe stuff, like make sure it's nothing crazy. But right. it, it is interesting, though, because the thing is, like, if, if Exxon Mobil asked for me to speak, and, and this has never actually come up, but it is an interesting dilemma, where is it better to take their money? And then, you know, I'm I basically give all that through my foundation to solar projects around the world. Is it better to take their money and use it for something useful? Or to decline their money and then they'll just hire some other speaker who does the same thing. You know, it's like it's kind of one of those things is like, do you actually feel like you personally are going to help their business? Because like if I speak to a bunch of Exxon executives, do I think that's going to help their sales overall? Like realistically, it's not, you know, I'm not that great a speaker. Like I'm not actually helping them do their job any better. It's just kind of a fun chat where they get to hear some stories about rock climbing. 
And so I think there is an argument to be made that it's better to work with some evil companies just to take their money to use it for things that are more socially beneficial. It's hard to say that. On the other hand, you just feel dirty doing any of that. And and yeah, I just never have. It's funny you bring that up because that's a relevant topic in the media these days. With um, It's called the effective altruist movement, mm-hmm. which is basically that idea of, um, you know, is a utilitarian approach to to philanthropy. And there is that, uh, you know, argument that people make where it's like, oh, if I, you know, I make a million bucks talking to ExxonMobil and I can put all that, that million bucks into things that help the planet and support causes that I believe in, then it, it you know, there's a, there's certainly a, a rationale for, for doing that. Yeah. I don't think that's fundamentally wrong. It's a little different because if you're appearing on a billboard helping to sell a product, then you probably shouldn't do that. But if you're at some closed meeting of executives where you're just chit-chatting with folks and signing a couple of books for them, it's just hard to imagine how that's going to affect their bottom line or or affect their impact on the world. I mean, you know, you could argue that that's how they retain talent and and whatever else. It's like you are still sort of bolstering their business in some way, but it's pretty freaking subtle compared to actually promoting their products though you know like when exxon mobile asks you're like oh you know i'm busy i'm in yosemite i'm in the van it's it's cool you, you just kind of like let that one slide <laughs> they're like are you using our gas in the van because we can get you some more dude freaking <laughs> yeah the diesel van i'm like screw that um <laughs> but you know you like could that. also there's certainly a way in which you you go in there and and, in, and within whatever talk you have you know it's like you could certainly be the the sort of mole that goes in there and says, yeah, and, and here's all my solar projects, by the way, you know, kind of, th- I mean, certainly they would be open to hearing that they're an energy company, you know, uh, certainly talks about that movement among their ranks as well. But anyhow, just another, another way to think about um, going in there and maybe changing a mind or something. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's exactly, but that's what you're trying to balance when you get those opportunities. You're like, is that cool? I had this conversation once with Hans Florian. We were hiking off El Cap and, uh, and he was talking about going to Japan to do cigarette commercials in the nineties. Like he, you know, he'd been hired as, as like the striking, beautiful blonde model, whatever, like the extreme (laughs) rock climber. And I was like, you did cigarette commercials in Japan. I was like, what? (laughs) You know, it was terrible. But then at the same time, you know, as a climber in the nineties, you're just looking to make a living and and I feel like cigarettes are maybe slightly less obviously evil then. And so, you know, but I was like, wow, everyone's got to support, you know, I mean, he raised two kids, yeah. so he's, he's supporting his family. Well, and I'm like, I respect that. But you're also like, man, that like, that's a bar that I will not, not, not pass. <laughs> honestly, the reason I asked you, Alex, is because you're in a position to decline, you know, more so than a lot of climbers. And certainly, you know, there was, there was the, I mean, a couple people were involved with Marlboro way back in the day too. I think Ron Kalk was, and uh, maybe did Jim, uh, Jim Bridwell was Jim yeah, Bridwell yeah, did yeah. a Marlboro. I thought he was a camel tra- guy. Oh, uh, well he did that like Borneo traverse. Oh, right. I think, I think that oh, was right. Marlboro, but he looks like the yeah. Marlboro man. So he should be sponsored. Yeah. You know, he's like, <laughs> he was like, what a dude. <laughs> yeah. But I'm just saying like, you couldn't climbers of old that were trying to make it work. It couldn't exactly be like you're going to pay me how much? Uh, no. Yeah, no. I've, so, but I you, you, and I think more modern climbers are 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 in positions sometimes to say no, um, just financially speaking. Yeah, we we can afford to follow our values a little more for sure. No, I mean climbers in the 70s, 80s, 90s. I mean it was a much much tighter marketplace. You know, they're just doing whatever they could to scrape mm-hmm. by. 
This podcast, however, has no values. And if there's any cigarette executives out there listening to this, you should reach yeah. out to us to uh, sponsor the show. Cut to a commercial for Marlboro right now. You're like, <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Just light up here on the, on the, on the thing. <laughs> that would be, uh, that, that's the uh, Joe Rogan podcast right there. You're like, everybody yeah. starts yeah, exactly. pumping partway through. <laughs> um, oh, I did want to say personally, got a, yeah, I got a full EV, baby, in the driveway right now. Oh, yeah. Now. Which, uh, which one? Yeah, Nissan Leaf. Yeah, oh, yeah, the new Nissan Nissan Leaf. Yeah, man, we had uh, we had all gotten a Nissan Leaf, and then uh, and then a Rivian finally got loaned to us. You know, we're using the truck instead of the Leaf, which I have yeah. to say is a lot nicer overall. But uh, I was about <laughs> to get a Leaf for just like a town commute car. Like I'm so into it; mm-hmm. it's, it's so much nicer. Oh, it's, yeah. we're loving it. It's just like the coolest thing. And we don't have solar on our house yet, but we're gonna. I'm gonna try to get it up there by the spring. So nice. And then we'll be nice. driving on the sun, baby. Dude, it's it's seriously so satisfying when you're driving around on the sun. Because, I mean, you, you'll do like mm-hmm. months where you don't go to a gas station at all for either vehicle. And you're just like, oh, this is all just coming from my house. Speaking of um, trying to stave off the worst effects of climate change, maybe this is a good way to seg you into your uh, Greenland expedition, which I wrote about for uh, Nat Geo. And, um, co- you know, t- got to talk to you on sat phones, as I just alluded to. Um, but maybe you could just fill in the listeners about what you guys did and um, what the the point of the, the expedition was. Yeah, so I went to Greenland this summer with the whole team for a three-part National Geographic TV show. And we climbed two large unclimbed walls. Well, one was kind of medium-sized and then the other was really, really big. Like maybe one of the largest unclimbed walls in the world or one, certainly one of the largest sea cliffs in the world. Uh, like this 4,000 foot face that just stuck out of the fjord. But we were also with this French uh, glaciologist. So we did quite a bit of climate science along the way and learned quite a bit and did some installed some temperature sensors here and there and took readings of this and that and basically did all kinds of fun, you know, as a TV show. So it's a whole adventure. We traveled across these glaciers and, you know, saw the landscape quite a bit. It was a pretty cool trip. I mean, the two routes that we climbed both turned out being something that we're proud of you know it's like you just never really know because the walls are unclimbed so you never know what you're going to get but the first route wound up being like a 15 pitch 12c really nice you know cool like pretty good climbing not the best rock quality but you know good enough for a for a virgin wall in greenland the other wall wound up being a 4,000 foot 11 minus x which wasn't what we were hoping for but you know we got to the top and it was an adventure and it, it was it was fine yeah, it sounded um, very chossy and uh, dangerous. Um, but you were you were climbing with Hazel Finlay, and um, so you had a good partner with a solid head on her shoulders uh, for that kind of that kind of adventure. On the second wall, I was mostly climbing with Hazel. Uh, Mikey Schaefer was also with us, though, and he did. And there was a whole other team. This guy Aldo Kane from the UK, and and uh, this Greenlandic guy Adam Guide Adam, um, and then Heidi Silvestre, who's the French uh, glaciologist. I mean, all six of us climbed the first wall together, which is pretty fun because Heidi was drilling these these rock core samples out of the cliff. So she came up, but mostly she and Adam just wanted to stay on a portal edge for a night and hang out, you know, experience Greenland. So that was pretty fun. And then for the second wall, we were sort of planning to go up as a bigger team. But then when we were trying to haul loads up for the team, we ripped the very first anchor out of the wall. And uh, so we we're like, OK, let's reevaluate the whole hauling thing since we just ripped an anchor. Because it was really hard to build good anchors because the rock, the rock was good, but it had very limited, there were just very few cracks. And so it was like hard to get decent gear. Like Wait you a second. Up. So you rip, rip, rip the anchor out and you're still here. What, how uh, did that work? 
It was a uh, Hazel and Aldo <laughs> were hauling. They ripped, uh, I think they ripped one or two pins out of a three piece anchor. Oh, okay. So it all wound up on okay. one piece and, and, you know, it was okay. backed up to some other thing up the way. Like, I don't mm. think they would have died. And actually, and because it was the first one, they would have just fallen back down into the sea. <laughs> so they, they maybe would have been okay anyway. But, I mean, they would have like bounced down this wall, but it would have been terrible. Right. And then I uh, had to un- quickly unclip from the sinking hall yeah, bags. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. But uh, yeah, and then they would have frozen too because their icebergs floating by. But of all the places to rip an anchor though, falling into the sea isn't, isn't the worst, you know? Right. <laughs> <laughs> but no, it, you know, it, it wasn't that dramatic, but, uh, but they just saw that even pitons were pulling out. So we're like, oh, geez, there's just nothing. There's no easy. And that was like the first of 40 anchors. And so it's a little daunting when you're like, oh, anchor number one, which we thought was bomber is not as bomber as we thought. Anyway, so that wall, we, we just trimmed down and then just Hazel and I climbed it basically Alpine style. Not exactly when- Alpine style. But one thing that stuck out of of our conversations about the expedition was um, that there was this kind of narrative that was trying to be people kept trying to sneak in to the, you know, the production that you guys were doing into the article that I was writing about you being a dad and, you know, going to this place that's kind of like the, you know, the forefront of climate change and just thinking about the future and wanting to care more about it for, you know, your daughter's sake and so forth. Um, And you being you, you were just like, well, that's not really how I feel. And I've cared about this stuff for a long time anyway. And so this isn't, this isn't having that kind of effect on me in that way. Um, which I thought was interesting. I've, I've always thought, I still feel the same way about that stuff. It's so weird. Can you imagine? Like I didn't care about the world before, but then I had a baby and now I care about the world more. And honestly, (laughs) I mean, and you guys tell me if you feel the same, but in my limited time as a father, if anything, I think and care about the world slightly less now because I'm just less informed. I'm reading less. I'm doing like I'm so busy trying to change my daughter's diapers and keep her fed that I'm like definitely doing less long term thinking and like global thinking. I'm too like, oh, my God, my daughter just puked on the floor again. You know, it's like I'm not I'm not like reading big books about the environment right now. So, you know, it I don't is know kinda... if I care about those things less, um, but I will say that I'm less, um, I, I, I think there's a lot of people who feel a great deal of anxiety around the climate catastrophe. And if it feels like the world is going to end in 30 years, if we don't get our shit together and there's a I, lot I of hate people that who, stuff. Yeah. Do, do you want to, well, do you want to hear a, an environmental rant? That's like a slightly different please. take on this kind of stuff. So, okay. And, and this is only true for those of us in the first world, basically, or like people in developed nations, like, you know, we're, I mean, we're all sitting here with microphones and podcasting on Wi-Fi, like we're freaking fine. But so sort of by definition, when you look at all the climate modeling, basically temperature rise is pegged to emissions. Emissions are pegged to economic activity. Economic activity is pegged to, to growth and I mean, it's economic activity. So like if the world warms by five degrees, it's because we're that much richer. If the world warms by like three degrees, it's because we're that much richer. And I mean, you can argue that you can decouple GDP growth from from emissions. And that's like what we're trying to do. And like, that's what the world's doing. But all this sort of like worst case scenarios, they're worst case for the environment. But they're sort of great scenarios for human development in a way in that people are you know, four or five times richer than they were presently. Like in the same way that that we're living much more comfortable lifestyles than our grandparents were, just in terms of of ease of access to food and the percentage of our income spent on housing and things like that. Which is funny because I know right now, you know, inflation is bad and everyone's like stressed about the economy and et cetera. But overall, we're living a much easier lifestyle than say our grandparents were uh, or, or our great grandparents. Like a hundred years ago, 
you know, people are spending half their income on food and it's like totally different scene. Like that's just not the case now. You know, food is basically ubiquitous. I mean, you know, being overweight is more of a problem than being underweight in most of the developed world. So it's like access to to food is is not really a problem. Anyway, this is all a bit of a rant to say that if the world gets too warm, it's also because the world has gotten much richer. And so, you know, the human side of it, it's like when people are like, oh, I'm worried for my kids. I'm like, your kids are going to be leading a much more comfortable lifestyle than than you were or your grandparents were for sure. That said, they're never going to go see the Great Barrier Reef and they're never going to go visit penguins. And like, you know, they'll never see a polar bear in the wild. Like, you know, the world is changing. And I mean, and that's why we need to worry about this kind of stuff is that like the natural world is is collapsing for sure. But the human experience will probably be very comfortable you know, yeah. it'll just be like yeah, all these futuristic shows where you're living in like pods and stuff like that. You're kind of like, well, yeah, it's sci-fi. It's like the Elon Musk Mars vision. You're like, cool. Yeah, we're living in a spaceship. You know, that's not the world that I want to <laughs> live in, but like it will probably be physically comfortable for humans. Yeah, I think it's good for people to hear that message because it's not true <clears throat> that the world's going to end in, you know, 50 years. Um, it will. But to your point, it will look different and there might not it'll be look like Dubai penguins and like, have you ever been to Dubai where it looks like a bunch of really nice spaceships that just landed in the desert? <laughs> and, you know, it's like crazy because the climate there is so like you basically can't be outside any time of the year. So everything of these enclosed spaceship sort of structures, super nice, super classy. Dude, the top of the Burj Khalifa, the tallest building in the world, had a vending machine for gold products. Like you put in a credit card and you take out a bar of gold. <laughs> You know, you're like, that's what? pretty, yeah, yeah, straight up. Like you could buy like a little necklace or you could buy like, you know, a, like a, a nugget or whatever. And then you could just get a freaking bar of gold out of a vending machine, you know, for like 10 grand on your credit card or whatever. It's like, it's like that kind of thing where you're like, this is so over the top. You know, it's just totally next level wealth. I'm like, did you yeah, buy a bar of gold, look- Alex? <laughs> no, no, I, I didn't. But I, I did take a picture of the vending machine though. Cause I was like, holy shit. <laughs> I couldn't believe it. But, um, yeah, anyway, it's just, you know, that's not the world that I want to live in, but it will be a relatively comfortable human world. Mm-hmm. It's just that all the other animal species will have died, you know, which which is, you could argue, sort of immoral and, and, and wrong. You know? Yeah. Yeah, totally. Well, you've, um, you know, you've used your position as a famous person and, um, you know, big name in the climbing world, but also in the in the public as well to, to advance some of these messages about, you know, climate activism and the environment and so forth. Is that something that has been largely positive experience for you? Do you, do you find it people push back on you? Do you feel, do you feel like you'd maybe be more successful if you just like stuck to climbing rocks and making like stupid jokes and stuff and in films and, and, uh, people would just love you for without you know having any kind of political or activist message attached to your name there's nothing stupid about alex honnold's jokes Come on. <laughs> no they're, they're great jokes <laughs> well now they're all dad jokes so they're even better you know i mean dad, dad jokes are funnier honestly i've just never thought too much about it i mean most of the the stances that i take you know are, are sort of environmental activism or whatever you want to call it any of the positions that i take are i'd like to think relatively well reasoned and, and and thought out and 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 sort of ethical you know like i think that I'd like to think that I'll be on the right side of history on most big issues. You know, it's like, this is the way the world is trending. And like, this is the the just thing. Like, this is the correct position. Like, we should care about the lives of other creatures on Earth, uh, you know, in addition to humans. Like, we should care about protecting the environment. Like, I'd like to think that a lot of my positions will be, you know, normal 50 years from now or whatever. 
And so whether or not that's popular or not, it's like, who cares? You know, like I sleep well at night. I think I'm doing the right thing. My family's happy. It's like, it's all, it's all good. Yeah. I just try not to, to worry about it all too much. Like comments one way or another. It's like, you just try to do the right thing and, and not stress it. We'll be forwarding our the emails we get um, about your environmental stance uh, directly to you, by the way. <laughs> yeah, actually, so my, my whole long, unformed rant right there wasn't to say, is you know, I think it's really important to take environmental action. I just think that when you frame that as you must take environmental action because the world is ending, it kind of does a disservice because it's like the world isn't ending. The natural world is largely ending. You know, we're in the middle of the sixth extinction if if you've ever read the elizabeth colbert book it's like you know great book it's like but basically all the other species on earth are grievously suffering and you know for the billion poorest humans on earth they're grievously suffering and will worse as a result of climate change but for the the richest you know two billion people on earth their lives are going to be continually improving you know like just getting more comfortable as they go and it's like yeah there might be some wildfire smoke in the summer but they'll just have like nicer air purifiers on their homes and like better air conditioning systems like it doesn't totally matter and so like if you're amongst the richest humans on earth which you know we and anyone listening to this podcast are it's like your life is going to be just fine and so i just think that you don't want to peg environmental action to this unfounded fear that like your life will be worse because like you should be doing environmental action because you care about the environment, and you care about the other lives on earth, you know, like it shouldn't be self-interest. Like it should be this broader global um, interest. Yeah. Well said. So, sorry. It's a bit of a bit of a rant here, but I just, That's I okay. kind of, I hate like apocalyptic climate things like that because it's like, you understand why people write those, those ways because you're trying to scare people into action. But I just don't think that I, I just never think it's the right thing to sort of lie to people to make them do what you want them to do. You know, it's like just trust them to to do the right thing, given full information. With the hurt traverse that you did, you actually kind of previewed that the last time we talked on um, the other podcast as something that was like close to home as, as you know, you're moving towards having a kid um, and you thought, okay, well, here's something close to home. Um, maybe there was a, I don't know if there was a carbon footprint idea in that as well of like, I don't need to go all around the world to find this one challenge that's right here. Um, what else, as, as you now have the child, and, and I think um, I counseled you early on that like your responsibilities would be pretty nil at first, and now and they'll just grow with time. How are you thinking about climbing, uh, traveling, um, you know, expeditions and things as your family's getting more important to you in a way, or at least um, requiring more of your responsibility? I think that the travel and expedition is for sure where I'm going to notice the biggest difference now having a family. I think that, uh, I mean, I kind of saw that this summer with this expedition to Greenland, that was a six week trip. And Sonia and I both, my, my wife and I both agreed that, uh, that was maybe a little too much. <laughs> it's a long time to leave my wife just single momming. And, you know, the trip had been pre-planned and it was all just kind of was happening. But I was like, oh, in the future, I'll probably try to do slightly shorter trips just so there's less of a burden on my wife. But we'll just see as as my daughter grows and as I want to spend more time with her at home and play with her and do, you know, like I wouldn't be at all surprised if my personal motivation shifts quite a bit as as my relationship with my, my daughter grows. I mean, so far, there's not that much of a relationship because she can't say anything yet. You know, I can't communicate with her yet. But presumably, once we're actually hanging out and we're buddies, like I'll want to spend more time with her. And so I'll probably want to be, uh, you know, away less. But at the same time, being a professional climber, it means climbing things. And so you do have to travel. 
And so I sort of expect to spend some time away from family for sure. And I, I think it seems relatively sustainable to do one or two expedi- like one or two big trips a year and then try to do stuff basically with the family the rest of the time. And I try to balance it against the fact that, that, you know, most people work in nine to five and they're sort of away from the house for eight hours a day. I'm with the family all the time when I'm home, but then when I'm gone, I'm really gone. So it's just kind of, you know, when it, when it rains, it pours kind of like a feast and famine mentality to quality time. Well, when she turns 13, you'll probably want to leave for months on end too. So <laughs> yeah, that's when I'll 13, start developing. 14, so, yeah. <laughs> I'll start developing new crags in Africa or something. I'll be like, oh yeah, yeah, I yeah, know. I got to be gone for like two months. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry. Just <laughs> zoom into that parent teacher conference. From I'll Africa, be like, oh no yeah, prom. prom. Yeah. You need to go shop for prom dresses. Yeah. No, no. I'm, I'm going to be in Africa actually. Yeah. Bummer. <laughs> You you thinking brother or sister for uh for June? Yeah, we've started talking about it. We'll see. It's right, hard to cool. imagine uh just starting over. Doing so it again. Yeah, it's yeah. so hardcore. <laughs> it's like Yeah. Yeah, I think uh last year I was always like theoretically it's like, oh, you know, just get it done. If you want to have two kids, just go rapid fire so that you get through it. You know, now that things with June are as she gets older, like getting a little easier and more fun, I'm like, man, you really want to start again? It's like, that's terrible. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I was like, maybe we do just want one, but we'll see. My uh, biggest fear at this stage in, in my life was uh, getting twins as our second. <laughs> and yeah. I just couldn't imagine that, unfortunately. Which happened to a good good climbing friend of ours. Yeah. Um, oh, yeah. It was right there by Andrew. Yeah, yeah in yeah. the same town. They got the twins. Bad <laughs> oh, luck. So we were good to Dude. go. <laughs> I I met a family that had uh, twins for their third, so they wound up with four, and they were like, "Oh no, <laughs> it's a disaster." <laughs> yeah, I mean, it seems like um, twins would be super cute, but man, that's a lot. So what's uh what's uh, what's next on your agenda for climbing projects? You've got this thing with Nick Barry you're working on. It sounds like a six slab climb that you guys yeah. are trying to do. Um, yeah, we'll see. what else is there? Not not that much Just stuff around home. I'll be around for the holidays, be gone a bit. Actually, uh, my wife is mostly. We're gonna go to Fontainebleau. You know, go bouldering uh, in the spring. It's like a family friendly bouldering area that all our friends go to every year. So so I'll probably be bouldering a bit through the winter and then go to Font in the in the spring for a month. We uh, nice. the Caldwells told us that it's not uncommon to find strollers just strewn about the forest with sleeping babies like hidden in the shady trees and things. And I was like, that all sounds pretty idyllic for for hanging out with the fam. And my wife loves yeah. bouldering, so it's uh, so it's like a great family trip. I kind of think this is going to be the key to traveling as a climber now is, uh, you know, mixing in the really good family-friendly trips like that where, like, my wife is really happy. You know, I bet our daughter will have a great time eating sand in the forest. It'll be fun. Kalimnos has a daycare. So oh, yeah? yeah? That's cool. For sure. Yeah. Huh. <laughs> what, uh, is it any good? Like, what are the, what are the age restrictions so. and stuff? I think so. It's some... It's some German lady, and I don't I don't know anything about the age restrictions, but um, huh. yeah, I know plenty of people have talked about it and used it. So I think it's you know drop them off in the morning, pick them up at in the afternoon, typical daycare kind of scene. So man, uh, that that is Put good to do about. Out. <laughs> yeah, yeah, definitely. <laughs> we we are thinking about maybe staying in Europe and sport climbing for a little bit after after font because if you get all strong bouldering mode, may as well go sport climb somewhere a little bit for fun after. Just, you know, even if you drop into like Cornadea or somewhere like that, just network with the climber moms and dads that live there yeah. and they'll, they'll yeah. hook you up. They'll hook you up with, uh, you know, sitters, daycare, the whole thing. It's like, it's easy peasy, um, in those like sport climbing venues and stuff. Hmm. Yeah. I'll we'll have to, uh, we'll have to see. I was actually thinking, depending for like a Euro trip, 
you just hire a guide too is like a you know day style like if you're just dropping in just the two of you with the kid because then you just have a designated belayer so you can like hang out with the kid the whole time and somebody just belays like i think that's a lot more common in europe i mean it's like it's funny because in the u.s that's like really not a thing but but uh you know, if you look at it as a percentage of the expense of your trip, you know, like you're already getting an Airbnb, you're renting a car, you're doing whatever, the, all the airfare, the guides are like not that expensive. And you're kind of like, oh, you just hire a belayer for, you know, the four days a week that you're climbing or whatever. <laughs> like it's actually kind of, it's like really not that much more, but it makes it way easier. We haven't done that yet, but it does seem like an interesting idea. I'm just trying yeah. to imagine a guide who, who like looks at his sheet in the morning and sees Alex Honnold has hired you for a day of guiding. And he's like, what yeah, the at fuck? The, at the casual sport, Greg. Yeah. yeah. Well, so in, uh, it's safer than the, the rant and picking the rando you, up. You just hand sure. him June and you're like, here. Yeah. No, we were in uh, we were in Sardinia last fall as a bit of a little baby moon thing. Like Sonny and I, Sonny was already five or six months pregnant, like climbing in the body harness. And like another friend was there. And so we were kind of hanging out. But the other friend was using a guide quite a bit. And it actually wound up being kind of great. Like we wound up using our friend's guide on and off. Like I wanted to do Hotel Supermonte, which is like a 10 or 12 pitch AB thing, like this really classic multi-pitch. But, you know, Sonny's wearing a body harness and she's super pregnant and like couldn't really support me. And, you know, basically I didn't have any other friends or partners. And so I wound up just like dragging this guide up there, you know, and it was freaking <laughs> awesome. And uh, he didn't, uh, and he was psyched. It was all, it was like a cool experience. But, uh, you know, it's like, great. if you can't find partners, just, just find professionals. It's like not a, did he, did he tip you? <laughs> no, but I was, I was basically teaching him how to him. jug. It's funny because he was like kind of a, a mountain guide, you know, he's like, he's a really good sport right. climber and like a strong alpinist and everything, but he's never really like jugged overhanging big walls like that. And so I was basically like <laughs> teaching the guide how to jug, you know, where you're like, okay, like to try to lower yourself out now, you know, do all these things. And then, uh, we, uh, we saw more app down the wall. And he was like, I don't do this. And I was like, don't worry, you're going to love it. This is way faster. This is going to be great. <laughs> he was like, I don't know. And then, you know, we, we made it down in like 40 minutes. And he was kind of like, yeah, I can see why that's a nice way. <laughs> like, that was pretty, pretty, pretty quick. <laughs> yeah, that was fun. But it did show the benefit of, of having, a, having a teammate like that. When it comes to time for hanging out and chatting about climbing, Alex Honnold is one of the most generous guys around. And this interview was no different. After we thought we were done, the combo continued with even more candid moments. On our bonus feed at patreon.com slash runoutpodcast, you can hear about how I saved Alex's career with a simple edit in 2012. More about how the Honnold Foundation works, climbing in Jordan, and just a smorgasbord of tantalizing bits from the world's most famous climber. Support the runout and become a rope gun at patreon.com slash runoutpodcast. On today's final bit, we'd like to feature a shortcut from the Jam Crack Podcast recent interview with Ben Moon. We love Nile Grimes because of his humor, compassion, and love for climbing. And we think this intimate interview shouldn't be missed by anyone who loves climbing too. Nobody else could do Moon this way. So listen here and then tune into the full jam crack with Nile Grimes and Ben Moon wherever you get your podcasts. And so France, he started going to France. To, did France become known as the, where the hardest routes in the world were? Uh, I think so. I mean, I was just followed. I mean, Jerry was keen to go there that in, in 84 and, uh, yeah, asked if I wanted to go. So, yeah, I was just sort of following Jerry, really. Um but yeah, on that trip, we ended up meeting up with 
you know, like Gibay and Marc and Antoine. I think Jerry already knew those, knew they had met them before. But yeah, that seemed like like the sort of place that, you know, grades were being sort of pushed. Seemed like the place to be, really. Um, it looks so amazing, didn't it? It just looks so amazing. Yeah, I mean, it's it just, just incredible. I mean, so I went amazing. back recently and it did feel, it did feel, I mean, it is a beautiful location and everything, but it did feel a bit old school. Um, I mean, it seemed really painful. Um, not that steep by right. compare, comparison to, you know, a lot of the sort of Spanish crags that people are climbing on now. Um, but the grades are tough. Definitely grades are tough. But, uh, yeah, it did, did, did have a sort of old school feel to it. And it's not very popular these days, I don't think. Right. Because the guy who went, did, have you been on Agincourt since you did it? Yeah, that, that's, when, that's what I'm referring to. I went it's back quite sharp. four years ago. Yeah. Did that guy, a French guy called Seb Bouin? Seb Bouin did it. What was his comment on it? Yeah, I thought he, I think he thought it was hard. Yeah. Um, but it's probably old school as well, isn't it? Yeah, well, I went on it and I was just like, oh my God, this is horrible. Yeah. <laughs> it just felt so hard, so sharp. It was really bouldery. Um, it was the first 8C? First 8C in France. Right. Yeah, right. first 8C in France. Wolfgang had done one in... Wolfgang had done Wall Street. Right, okay. Yeah, in huh. Germany. So and that was cool because that's sort of... You went to France and one of the things I wanted to talk about, you mentioned GB. I remember meeting you and GB together at... Uh, Columnos a couple of years ago. Yes. And it, it became obvious that you guys had a rivalry. Yes. And it, not just you guys, but almost like France and England had a rivalry. There was a real sort of, which goes back historical in, in the history, but also in climbing climbing terms. It seemed like there's a, a bit of energy between those two places. At the time, France was probably the center of this new sport climbing thing. And yourself or Jerry were also going there and more than any other foreigner making an impact on the climbs there. So did a rivalry appear? I know the French people used to come to the UK a lot more. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, obviously, as you say, there's there's always been a sort of rivalry between the French and the English, hasn't there? And, um, but, yeah, I don't, to be honest, I didn't really feel like there was a, a, a like a, a, I didn't feel like we were sort of competing with them. And, mm. you know, they were really friendly. And, and welcoming to us. Uh, me and Jibay did have a bit of a to-do once, and I can't even remember what it was about now. Um, yeah. Something about a bus? Well, I had, I remember, I remember being on a comp, com, at this competition and being on this comp, being on this competition bus in the morning, all of all the competitors, um, being ferried to the competition and having this, Having this big row with Yibei on the bus, but I can't even remember what it was about now. Um, half a grade here. Second. A half a grade somewhere. <laughs> yeah, maybe half a grade. Yeah, yeah, maybe. It might have been something stupid like that. It was. Yeah, I just can't remember what it was about. I mean, he did, he did, he did call. Um, there was some joke about basically. I did, I did, I did Maginot Line, which is. Um, this 8C route at this crowd called Vault. Yeah, go back to you said, Agincourt was a famous battle for the English beat the French, yes, right? Yes, in 1066 or whatever. Or whatever, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. And um, yeah, basically I'd, I'd done all the routes of Bukes, I'd done all the hardest routes of Bukes, yeah. and there was this this route called, this aid route called Babui, um, I think it's how you pronounce it, 
and um, which hadn't gone free, which was up above the um, up on the mission ledge. And I basically did that, free climbed that, and uh, called it uh, Agincourt, um, which, which, which is very pro- very provocative. And you know, I now I look back on that, and I that, I do feel a bit embarrassed about it. And I've said that bef- in other interviews since that, yeah, maybe it's not in very good taste. Right. So calling then you went, it a root the, name so after then that. You went and did Maginot Line. <laughs> so, yeah. Well, at the time, I didn't think it was provocative. But um, yeah, then then I went and did this route at uh, at, at Volks called Maginot, uh, which 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 was an open project. Um, a load of the French had been trying it, and I did the first ascent of that, and I called it Maginot Line. Maginot um, Line was a, a Maginot line of defense was, between a line of defense defense between France and Germany before the Second World War, and the Germans just marched around it, around it, it, invaded France. France. Yeah, exactly. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and uh yeah so again yes but, uh, i'm probably the one to blame for the for for that and uh, but i can't remember if that's what we, we had an argument about what whether i had that was argue well, that's what i was arguing with gibert about but i remember um basically that the route of volks had been nicknamed la platform which i think just means roof or something and um obviously i did it and renamed it maginot line and then someone someone put a plaque at the bottom of the route because they put name plaques at the bottom of all the routes in France and they put the, the name La Plateforme, you know, at the bottom of this route. And I remember Ed Langer knocking it off with a hammer and giving it to me because he thought it should be called Maginot Line, right. which was pretty cool. But then Gibay did an extension to it, which finished up this route called Terminator and, and called it, well, Super Platform. But I think he also said he called it, or it was written up as La Lune dans la... Something the gutter, like, yeah, carnival or something. The the moon is in the gutter. Um. So yeah, I think he was having a go at me. And I remember Jerry bringing back a poster of Gibay on the super platform, and Jerry had signed it, um, La Lune dans la carnival, and then signed it Gibay, and given it to me. And I was, I was like, Are "You joking?" I didn't realize it was like Jerry had like faked it. <laughs> Oh, I totally fell for it. <laughs> You've just finished another episode of the Runout Podcast. I'm Andrew Bisharat, and you can reach me at Andrew at runoutpodcast.com. And I'm Chris Caloose, and you can reach me at Andrew at runoutpodcast.com. <laughs> Dude, come on. <laughs> Because Chris at runoutpodcast.com is where emails go to die. That's true. We also have a Patreon that you can support our show at, and it's runoutpodcast.patreon.runoutpodcast.com. No, no, it's patreon.com slash runoutpodcast. Yes. (laughs) If you dream of sending 514 every month for the rest of your life, you should go and sign up. At Patreon slash runoutpodcast.com. No, pot.com slash runoutpodcast. Something like that. Give us some money.